Eloquentia perfectin ex machina. Eloquentia perfectin ex machina. Eloquentia perfectin ex machina. Welcome to Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, a podcast series dedicated to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a variety of media and focused on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors on how and why they use multimodal approaches, and we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. Welcome back! After a bit of a hiatus in the spring, we've got an exciting lineup of episodes for you. As many of you may know, SLU has launched a new undergraduate core curriculum this fall that features Eloquentia Perfecta as one of the main branches of the core, a commitment or recommitment to eloquence in written, oral, and visual communication. So over the course of the next few semesters, we'll be featuring a few episodes that dive specifically into how these core changes have encouraged writing program instructors to center or recenter multimodal composition in the writing program classroom. Our first episode this season was actually recorded back in the spring and features Katie Gutierrez-Glick and Meha Gupta in a conversation about transnational diversity in the classroom. Specifically, Meha, who is then a first-year MA student in the English department at SLU, discusses her experience and techniques as a first-time international instructor in English 1900. Meha, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Hi, Katie. Thank you for having me. Yeah, would, would you mind just introducing yourself for the listeners? Sure. Uh, I am Meha. I'm a first-year master's student at SLU, and I am interested in post-colonial literature and, as of recently, decolonial pedagogy and a bit of poetics. Yeah, just a sampler platter of all the different interests yes. here. <laughs> And um, you were just saying that you've been in St. Louis about seven months now? Yes, I have been here seven months. I came here in August. Uh, it's my first time being in the United States. Uh, I came from India. That's where I did my undergrad in. I was born and brought up there. Excellent. Great. So I wanted to first kick it off by talking a little bit about your background as an international student mm -hmm. and perhaps some of your experiences so far that you've um, had so far it's slow. Yeah. So as an international student from India, I think the first thing that comes to mind is just the international student community, which has been pretty supportive and they do a lot of events. So it's not that I would have to say that I don't feel at home here. But even with that, just being around people who are from America has been very enlightening, uh, sort of validating because you have this idea of how America is. Um, through the media and you come here and you're like, well, I think some of this is right, but not all of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, but there are so many great things I got to know from that. But as an international student, I think my experience has been way better than I would have expected for it to be here, especially at the English department. I just, I'm just in awe of like how supportive everyone is and just this communal solidarity is just something that keeps me going. That's amazing. Yes. That's great. And you're also teaching this semester as well. Yes. Uh, I am teaching English 1900. We have reached the peak of this uh, of the semester wherein the major project, the Disso logo, is due. So uh, it's going good. Excellent. And which, which section of English 1900? Okay, yes. I am teaching gender and identity. Great. Great. The first thing, or like the topic we wanted to talk about, 
was the issue of obtaining the credibility or authority as an international student and an instructor in the classroom. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? Yes, sure. Uh, I think the idea of maintaining credibility is one of the first anxieties you get when you uh, realize that you have to start teaching these bunch of students that you don't completely relate to on a lot of levels. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think there were so many other things that I just overlooked, so many things that were more important. But I would say that about 90% of all the anxieties about being credible enough were not um, important mm -hmm. when I actually started teaching, especially now that I'm like in the middle of the semester, all of it doesn't seem as valid. But I think the point of difference that I found with my students and my colleagues was that all of them do understand American references and they are more familiar with the cultural issues, so mm -hmm. social, political of those issues, not in depth as much as I would know about them. So I didn't know about them in depth. Um, but what I did there was to try to use my age sort of as a similarity point. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm 21 right now. And I think that so students uh, are from like around the age of 18 to 19. Yeah. And just bringing in some references about pop culture and just having GIFs or GIFs. I don't want to offend anyone <laughs> on um, my slides and trying to uh pursue our activities and discussions around the medias that they would be familiar with mm -hmm. as for a lack of a better term Gen Z yeah. um, is something that I use try to use to my advantage and I think that worked a little well like when we kicked off the semester and tried to talk about ethos, pathos, logos, kairos um, I asked them to find sources or videos from like either TikTok or YouTube and Instagram or whatever they found convenient and find all of those rhetorical elements in them. And I think that went pretty well because all of us understood each other and mm -hmm. it's, it wasn't as important for me to understand it uh, and understand the references as for me to understand that they do need a space to talk about all of those issues because that would be the easiest possible way to understand these theories that they might not have been familiar with. Absolutely. I kind of like the idea how you used something that could have been a source of anxiety for you being like mm -hmm. your age in relation to mm -hmm. your students in the classroom and you used it like to your advantage mm -hmm. as far as like gaining credibility or helping you feel like you had more confidence mm -hmm. as an instructor. I think that in a lot of ways, individuals Everyone kind of feels that, yeah. especially, you know, uh, women who are instructors in the classroom, any sort of, you know, mm -hmm. minority individual. So I love that you kind of like use that to your advantage. Yes. Um, I would also say that it's, yeah, there is that feeling that everyone might think I'm an imposter and I'm not. The experience of working at the writing center mm -hmm. was really helpful here. Because I got this semester to talk to students without like having that, that you know, quote unquote authority understanding.
Absolutely. Yeah, you kind of got um, a bit more acclimated mm-hmm. Yeah, to the students as well. Whenever there is something that they mention that I don't know about, I just ask them Absolutely. instead of pretending that I know it <laughs> or be like, well, okay, I can Google it. I would just ask them to explain it to me. So the next topic I wanted to go ahead and talk about was your role within the classroom mm-hmm. because we know as uh, instructors of English 1900 that we can take a variety of different roles Um, in the classroom as it relates to the students. So uh, what sort of role do you find yourself taking within the classroom? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the role that I took was sort of between being a transparent, friendly sort of teacher and being an authoritative, sort of limiting teacher in Mm -hmm. a way. And the topic of roles was something that I wanted them to be hyper aware of that mm-hmm. they would realize that even like the teacher is a human being which I think as an undergrad you don't really care about enough you're taking so many classes <laughs> like uh, so I did send out a google form before the class and one of the questions there was what do you think the role of a teacher is there mm-hmm. and many of them wrote that you know the teacher is supposed to sort of create pathways for learning and mediate discussions which I, I was glad that they that we had the same understanding what a teacher's role should be. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that was especially important because I did not want to go ahead and give a whole lecture and then realize that they did not understand the context of it, Mm -hmm. especially if we were dealing with texts that were not familiar. So in that particular situation becomes even more important to have more class-mediated discussions and have smaller groups. And I think smaller groups has worked really well for the class. Um, They talk, like three people would talk to each other and then bring up whatever they come up with. Mm -hmm. Uh, And apart from that, just as a teacher, I I do like to go ahead and check in with everyone once in a while and sort of I try to utilize whatever information I have to be empathetic and sympathize with them because they do struggle with deadlines sometimes and to leave that space is important. Yeah, I really like how you checked in and asked your students like what what is what do you think my role is because Mm -hmm. I think different students have like different expectations or perhaps different needs from their instructor that aren't always articulated. So it's nice to kind of get that feedback. Did you have any like outliers in the classroom that maybe wanted a more authoritative figure? I think not that someone said that out explicitly, but sometimes you would see students just being on their phones. So I think they expect me to be lecturing all the time instead of letting them be in groups and talk mm-hmm. to each other. I do try to recreate groups in a way that there would, within the groups, and we did an activity once where I gave all of the students a specific role to take that one would just write down things, one would disagree, one would agree, and that sort of, you know, try to ignite this spirit of teamwork and try to have one almost authoritative figure in each mm-hmm. group one, uh, every time so that at least work is being done and everyone knows what they're doing. Yeah, I, I like that idea. I find that when I've assigned 
group work uh, within the classroom, if you have them go ahead and present their findings to the class, whatever they're working on, it kind of changes their dynamics within the group, uh, basically. Maybe they take it a little bit more seriously if they have to present it to their peers, mm-hmm. which can help sometimes. They do. Um, yes. But yeah, some people definitely do take group work as the opportunity to, uh, you know, check the memes or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have there been any other particular activities or assignments that have been particularly like illuminating on? Uh, on this topic of international identities or, like, your identity within the classroom? Yeah. uh, So for a third short writing assignment, I had them choose a country besides the United States Mm -hmm. and research the current or recent debate about uh, non-heterosexual marriages in that country, so Mm -hmm. legal debate. And... A lot of them did really well on that because if I would have chosen a topic that was US-centric, they would have just assumed that their audience knows the context yes. and would just totally ignore that in their writing. But but having them go out of their comfort zone, sort of challenging them to think, to present, not be sort of an, an ambassador for that country, of course, but sort of be this mediator of information that is not that the audience isn't aware of Mm -hmm. uh, really helped for them to understand the importance of writing in context and especially with the subject matter too a lot of them thankfully did go ahead and critique it in like a very global way globalized way and the differences between the east and the west and some of them did touch on colonialism which I was glad about (laughs) Um, we love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> we love to see it. Uh, on top of that, I gave them a specific word limit for each of the paragraphs, and I did. They did. A, I think they did a great job of, you know. I think I heard Doctor Nathaniel Rivers in a class mention it that he sometimes gives a certain number of words for each paragraph or like their assignments, mm-hmm. so that they have they're forced to go ahead and rephrase things because usually they just don't revise it. Mm-hmm. At the 1900 level and at the 2000 level Mm -hmm. some of the best conversations that I've had in the classroom is when empowered students or given them permission to bring their own backgrounds into the classroom you know being a university that has a lot of international students I felt like those conversations have been the most fruitful rather than assuming that everything's at the U.S. centric level. I I would also say that I was surprised that there were students just there were students who were very vocal about the country that they had immigrated from. Mm-hmm. Then I was surprised that they didn't write about that in their country. Mm-hmm. And I'm still trying to th- think through it. Maybe they just wanted to explore something else. But I expected them to write about it. Um, I'm just I'm still thinking through why they would do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess variety of reasons. Yeah. I, I know um, for myself. Personally, um, talking to some of the international students that I've had, they've said things to me like, well, I don't I didn't think that my opinion on like my country would necessarily or like various views within my country um, that anyone would want to hear that Mm -hmm. in the classroom. So sometimes at least what I found is that, you know, reminding students that like, no, we really do want to hear your point of view. 
emphasize that it is valid. Yeah. 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 So as far as other activities or tools that you use in the classroom, do you have any other um, uh, tools that you've used that have helped you? Yeah. One that has helped me quite a bit to know what the students are thinking is what I call the archive. So it is an assignment that they make, like it's updated throughout the course. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially class notes, but not quite. So it has two sections to it. Um, The left section is essentially the things that the ideas that they had during the class discussion that Mm -hmm. they did not necessarily bring up or thought was relevant to the discussion or maybe any external connections they thought of, just like sort of an archive or a dump of all of the things you were thinking about. And then the right side of that, the right column is all about the practical things that you learn to the class. So like if I am, if when I am done with the course and I want some writing tips, I can go ahead and just look at those notes. So I think I did check the archive in the middle of the semester and it was really interesting to see somehow that I did, I did not really know if students would, write what I expected but they Mm -hmm. did write that oh I wanted to bring this up in class today but I thought it wasn't valid enough yeah and I just made like a little comment there well to bring it up this next time and because there were interesting comments of Mm -hmm. course I think just that sort of reminds you that they are like still students yeah like you I have been there most of us have been there where we want to say out something but we don't Mm -hmm. And I think that just helped me also guide the discussions that I post afterwards. So I would like make the questions more specific. I really like that idea of the archive because I know that when I read um, student, you know, reading responses or short writing assignments um, and they have such, you know, eloquent thoughts within their writing or um, the ways they critique various theories and things like that. Um, but they maybe don't bring their, those thoughts up within the classroom. I kind of like that. You have almost like a, a glimpse into like their diary or something. Yes, it is. It's not as personal, but it's certainly very, um, it connects me to them in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I might have to write that one down. <laughs> <laughs> We call it the archive. I can send you my like description of the archive. Yeah, that's very helpful. Where did the inspiration from this assignment or uh, this like tool come from? It's not entirely inspiration, but me and my friends run this Instagram account. It's called the Lit Archives, mm-hmm. and we do archive dumps of excerpts from the internet. And I was just thinking about it when we were taking uh, Dr. Rivers' uh, teaching writing seminar. Because I, when I was taking classes my first semester, it did happen a lot of times when I did not. I wanted to say something, but I wouldn't because I did not know how to say it. And I thought I would fumble. Yeah. Or like, because I'm, English is my second language. So maybe there are students who feel that way, even if English isn't their second language. Yeah. So. Yeah, Absolutely. Oh, if you want us to go ahead and make a note of your um, Instagram account, we can do that on here too as well. Well, yeah, sure. It's called uh, The Lit Archives. We have a really, really nice community there. Great. Yeah. So it was just like at uh, uh, The Lit Archives. Yes. L-I-T. Yes. Great. All right. Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. 
Do you have any specific texts that you use or texts you suggest uh, for um, within the classroom? Yeah. Um, I think the most important one that came to mind is Elaine Schwalter's Towards a Feminist Poetics. Mm-hmm. And it is... Um, a feminist literary critical text uh, so it's not necessarily about writing but it's about literature and li- the literary traditions and Schalter there basically it's a theory about these three feminist literary subcultures which she names them as feminine, feminist and female. Mm-hmm. The feminine one is the stage where women were basically trying to copy men and conform to the dominant tradition. And then the feminist is totally opposing that. And the female one is where you find a natural balance. So it's very dialectical, but feminist. Yeah. It's an American text. It's not necessarily uh, transnational, but I used it to apply to a bunch of texts from around the globe. So... I used uh, Rasundri Devi's Amar Jeevan, which translates as My Life. So it's mm-hmm. the first like biography published, at least by and posthumously uh, by an Indian author, a woman. And it's basically she writing about how she, she was married off as a child and she taught herself how to read and write, mm-hmm. which was really interesting. And the other one was Amata Aidu's The Girl Who Can, which is about this young girl whose grandmother thinks that she does not have hips good enough to bear a child Mm -hmm. and has really thin legs but she uses that to her advantage and becomes um, a racer and she wins like a race and then everyone is happy and I think those two were really uh, significant to introduce to the class because I don't think they're very common female struggles Mm -hmm. both of them are not won't a, a, a usual American person won't really be aware of like well people did have to teach them how to like themselves how to read English or like read anything yes. and she taught herself that through religious texts which was very interesting and applying that to Schalter's theory worked really well in the class because of course not all of the texts can be entirely feminine or feminist or female but all of them had elements of it and that brought up the conversation around the universality of experience mm-hmm. and just how these texts were written so far away, but they still are doing something as writers. Yes. And that helped them realize that they need their own personal way of writing, style of writing. Mm-hmm. That's that's amazing. All of that so far in English 1900. Yes, wow. these, <laughs> you've these been were, busy. <laughs> they were not difficult to read, at least. So I think they did understand all of it. Yeah, well, that always helps too. <laughs> yes, <laughs> great. Um, well, I think that concludes all of the talking part points I had. Did you um, have any, perhaps, uh, concluding comments or anything that maybe we missed that I that you wanted to touch on? I think I would just say that even despite all of these measures, there would be times that I don't really understand why students are doing what they're doing as like, (laughs) as a, (laughs) yeah. So it has been really helpful to just ask um, my cohort 
about just like send them a text is it normal for a student to email me about their life problems mm. because that's not normal from where i come from and they would say well yeah it's okay I'm like okay because i would have responded sympathetically either ways but i just yeah. need to know what the customs are and that learning experience has been really helpful with like people who um share sort of the same problems and <laughs> just sharing it with people has been really helpful yeah i think having fellow instructors and graduate students that you can lean on and ask questions is just like so vital getting through this program so that's great to hear that yes well thank you for coming on the podcast thank you we really appreciate me. it <laughs> uh, yeah it was a pleasure talking about all of this you can never get enough um talking about what you do in a classroom to get involved in this podcast series to share an assignment or tool or to pitch an interview please contact me at sheila.corsi at slu.edu eloquentia perfecta ex machina eloquentia perfecta ex machina eloquentia perfecta ex machina eloquentia perfecta ex machina